Good morning. I'm Lois. I'm glad to be with you this morning, privileged and honored and um, especially excited to look into God's Word with you for a few minutes this morning. So, um, you know, of course, the way our calendar works, um, Christmas always, you know, the Sunday after Christmas always falls on a different at a different time related to Christmas every year. And so this year, here we are, the day after Christmas Day. And um, as uh, I think it was Shannon said, you might be thinking, hey, wasn't I just here? Yeah, if you, if you came to Christmas Eve worship, you were just here. Um, but uh, you might be feeling today grateful. Um, you might be g- glad you have this day to recuperate. Uh, you might be feeling a little overwhelmed if you're back to work tomorrow and thinking about, oh my gosh, I have all these things to get done before I can get back into that routine. Um, but hopefully, if you're here today, either in person or online, uh, you're feeling that this really is the perfect place to be on the day after Christmas, right? Because what better response to Christmas is there than worship? Advent, our Advent wreath is gone. Our, the Advent, that time of anticipation and preparation is over, and we're singing and celebrating and worshiping because Christ has come, and it is fitting to celebrate together. According to the church calendar, of course, um, Christmas has really just begun. Um, for the church, the calendar begins with Advent, that time of anticipation and looking forward, leading up to the celebration of Jesus' Advent, of his coming. And then Christmas begins on Christmas Day, December 25th, and it traditionally included feasts and celebrations for the next 12 days, hence the the song, 12 Days of Christmas. Um, But in our culture, it doesn't really feel like Christmas is just beginning, does it? In fact, it, it feels like it's done, right? All that decorating and shopping and all the parties and the wrapping and then the unwrapping, that, that's all over. And maybe your house looks a little bit like this. <laughs> maybe that's why you're here. Like you just wanted to go someplace other than be in your house, right, to get away from it. Um, you wish it looked that good. Yeah, that's... <laughs> Um, and, you know, maybe, uh, just maybe, you're feeling a little bit of that let-down feeling that often comes the day after a big anticipated event. Um, or maybe that's just me, because yesterday morning, I was in my house with my two sons and their wonderful wives and my two amazing grandbabies, and now everyone is gone to the in-laws, So it's a little bit of a letdown, I'm not going to lie, okay? Um, But, you know, people often do feel a bit of heaviness after Christmas. It's really normal. And you may not be feeling that today. You may still be on that Christmas high. You may still have your family with you, um, unlike me. Uh, but, uh, But that heaviness is often related, really, to some sort of a, a little bit of a disappointment, that not all of our expectations and our hopes for the season were met. You know, I, when I was a kid, I remember, you know, we'd open the presents in the morning, and then um, I would go back to look at my list of things that I had wanted for Christmas, and I would check off what I got and be super disappointed about those things I didn't, which I'm so embarrassed. I can't believe I just confessed that to you all. There's a, terrible. Where was my gratitude? Um, But, you know, I just would be so disappointed about things that didn't happen or I didn't get. 
Well, I no longer have uh, that disappointment about material gifts. The older I get, the less I really want at all. Um, but I am aware of how I can find myself feeling disappointed or confused by events or circumstances that didn't quite go as I had expected or hoped. I can be sad that I didn't quite grasp all that hope and joy and love and peace that was supposed to permeate the season. And I'm just being honest here, but maybe, maybe you can relate a little bit to that. Um, I think Mary and Joseph must have felt that way when the, un- the events of their lives unfolded as they did after that first Christmas. That's a scripture we're going to look at this morning, the one that Christy just alluded to. So uh, would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful to gather here this morning in person and online to worship you, to celebrate your coming. We ask now, God, that as we open your word, as we look to it, that you would open our hearts and our minds that we would hear from you, God, that we would meet you in this time and this space. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're looking this morning at the passage that's in the last half of chapter 2 of the Gospel of Matthew. It's Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23. And just a quick review so you have some context. Um, Matthew's gospel begins with this account of uh, Jesus' genealogy, right? And he traces it all the way back to Adam. And uh, Adam was the one that God had called way back when, when he was creating the nation of Israel. And God had promised Abraham that through his offspring, all people would be blessed. And this was a hugely important promise to the Jewish nation, one they counted on and they clung to throughout their history as a people. And remember, each of the four Gospels is written, uh, these accounts of Jesus' life, they're all written to a different audience, and they're based on the author's background and experience and their interest. And Matthew's Gospel was written especially for a Jewish audience. And so throughout the Gospel, he's pointing out that Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had promised in their scriptures that they were all familiar with. And he wants them and us to understand that Jesus is that Messiah that they've been waiting for, that they've been anticipating throughout their history as a people. And so, of course, he's going to begin by by tracing Jesus' lineage back to the one who was considered the father of their nation, to the one whose that promise had been given that through his offspring, all people would be blessed. So then, after that genealogy, Matthew goes into his version of Jesus' birth narrative, which emphasizes pretty different things than uh, Luke does in his gospel. We've been looking at Luke's gospel the last couple weeks. Um, Matthew tells how Jesus, how Joseph was going to quietly divorce his fiancée, Mary, who had uh, somehow mysteriously become pregnant, and how an angel came to him in a dream and told him the baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit and that he was to marry her, and he was to name the baby Jesus because he would save the people from their sins. So chapter ends with the baby being born and Joseph naming him Jesus, and chapter 2 begins with the visit of the Magi. 
So, and just to clarify, this was not the day after Jesus was born that the Magi were there. Our, you know, all of our little um, nativity scenes have the, the shepherds and the wise men all there together. They were not there together. It took a couple of years for those wise guys to get, uh, to make the trek from the east all the way to the Holy Family. Um, but you know their story, right? Uh, these were learned men who studied astronomy. They saw a star indicating that a king had been born and so they in Israel, and so they came from these foreign cities to the capital city of Jerusalem looking for the new king, thinking, oh, new king must be in the, in the capital, right? And they brought all these gifts. Okay, but then the, they went to the current king, Herod, who was a terrible guy, and uh, uh, they say, where's the king? And he's like, well, I don't know about a king, but I'll do some research. He finds out that, oh, yes, these Jewish people that he was ruling over uh, were expecting a king and that, it that he was expected to be born in the town of Bethlehem. So Herod sends the Magi there to look for them, and he says, oh, and then come back and tell me, you know, where, where he is exactly, because I want to go worship him too. And, of course, that's not true. He wanted to get rid of any threat to his, his ruling, so he was going to kill this guy once he found out where he was. Um, so the Magi go, they find Jesus, they worship him, they give him all these gifts, uh, and then, but they're warned in this dream not to go back to Herod, and so they don't. They head home instead, and that's where we're going to pick up the story. All right, so Matthew 13, or Matthew 2, beginning with verse 13. When they, the Magi, had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was, to be said, what was said through the prophets, that he would be called a Nazarene. All right, well, talk about disappointing and confusing. Uh, this is the ultimate post-Christmas letdown, isn't it? Think about it. Joseph and Mary had been told these amazing things about this baby, right? Mary had been told by an angel that he would be the son of God. Shepherds had told Mary and Joseph that angels had said he was Christ, the Lord. And Joseph had been told by that angel that this baby would save his people from their sins. Kings from this foreign land had just come to worship him and shower him with gifts, and the next thing that happens is that Joseph has a dream in which he's told to flee because the current political leader is going to search for their baby and, as Christy said, harm him. <laughs> he's going to destroy him. This is definitely not have been, would, 
definitely not have been what they would have expected. And it definitely would have been very disappointing and confusing, to say the least. So let's take a closer look at the passage to see what we can learn. Because this story is, is more than a story. It's not just about some events that happened in Jesus' early life. It's not just a travel log. It has some really significant theological overtones, which can inform and deepen our faith, and which I believe can help us when we find ourselves in times in our own lives that feel disappointing or confusing. You know, like when the variant of a virus uh, seems to be potentially threatening to shut our world down again. <laughs> I would, I would uh, invite us all to do like a collective sigh. I don't know. I open up the news every morning. I'm just like, ugh. I would invite us to do that, but that's probably not a good idea. You know, like we're, even though we're socially distanced and have masks on, I probably shouldn't instruct you all to breathe out heavily. So I won't do that. But don't we all feel that? We need some good news this morning. So let's go ahead and dig into this scripture and see if we can find some. All right, so the first thing to notice in this passage is that it breaks down into three clear sections. And you might have noticed that as I was reading it. Um, each one of these sections describes something that happened, and each one ends with pointing out that the thing just described was a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. So uh, verse 15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. But the scriptures that are referred to here, the prophecies, they were all ones that uh, Matthew's Jewish readers would have been very familiar with, but they're all, they're each a little puzzling. Let's take a closer look at them. Okay, so first we have Joseph being warned in a dream to escape to Egypt because his newborn son was about to be murdered. Again, think about how surprising and disturbing that news would have been for Joseph. That angel had told Joseph that this baby was to be named Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And now he was saying, flee? Like, how does that work? This doesn't make sense. If this baby was going to save his people from their sins, shouldn't there just be like some miracle to keep him from being killed? I mean, he was miraculously born. It, this thing, this doesn't seem that complicated compared to how he had been born, right? But Joseph doesn't seem to question, and he's immediately obedient. He gets up, packs up his family. They leave for Egypt which, by the way, would have been a very inconvenient and perilous journey. And as, uh, as Christy mentioned, they go into a foreign land to live. This is not a trip that Joseph would have been excited to take, for sure. And this section then ends, so, And so was fulfilled what the Lord said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I call my son. So it seems that perhaps... God has orchestrated things, so this prophecy would be fulfilled. But there's actually much more to it than that. If you go back and read Hosea 11.1, 1, the prophecy that's being quoted here, and look at the context of that verse, you'll see that that's not actually a predictive prophecy. It's not one that's telling what's going to be happening in the future. 
And it is certainly not what we would call a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the coming Messiah who was promised. There are lots of those, particularly in the book of Isaiah, these predictive messianic prophecies that foretold about Jesus, but this is not one of those. This passage, uh, the passage this verse comes from, is a recollection of the Exodus. When God led his people out of captivity in Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea, and he told them that he would lead them into the promised land. So what is going on? Is Matthew just trying to kind of make a prophecy fit in order to try to convince his readers that Jesus really is the promised Messiah? You know, how people sometimes will take a verse out of context to make it work for their situation? No, that's not at all what's happening. So Matthew here, what he wants to do is help his readers to see that, as one commentator put it, Just as God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate his original covenant with them, so again, God is bringing the Messiah who fulfills all the hopes of Israel out of Egypt as he is about to inaugurate his own, his new covenant. Let me read that again. Just as God brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt to inaugurate his original covenant with them, so again, God would be bringing the Messiah who would fulfill all the hopes of Israel and us out of Egypt as he is about to inaugurate his new covenant. See, what Matthew's doing here is he's trying to show the scope of God's story. It's all one story. It's all connected. God was going to once again act, and in a way that was familiar to them, but we know that this time, through Jesus' death and resurrection that were to come, his saving action would this time be once and for all. Those Israelites who were brought out of captivity in Egypt were still bound to a sacrificial system to make themselves right with God, weren't they? But Jesus would become the sacrifice that would do away with all of that. Jesus was going to complete what God intended all along for his people. Through Jesus, relationship with God would be perfectly restored. Jesus would be the true fulfillment of all that had been promised so many centuries before. Well, the next section of this passage tells us about Herod's decree to kill all the baby boys two years and younger in the vicinity of Bethlehem. With the information that he'd gotten from those magi, he figured that that would be a broad enough um, action to be sure that the king, this new king, was gotten rid of. So, and again, the prophecy that's quoted here is not seemingly a direct messianic prophecy, oddly. If you go back and read chapters 30 and 31 in the book of Jeremiah, where this verse is found, Uh, you'll see that it's in the middle of a very hopeful prophecy, actually, that was given by Jeremiah to the Jews during their exile from Israel. So the exile was, of course, Jerusalem had been captured by the enemy, and many of them, particularly their young men, had been carried off into exile to Babylon. By the way, to understand this passage a little bit better, this verse a little bit better, it's helpful to know that Rachel, the term Rachel, was often used to refer to all the mothers of Israel. 
because Rachel was such an important person in their history. So she was mother to all. And her grave was in this place called Ramah, which was on the road that led from Jerusalem to Babylon. The exiles would have traveled on that road. They would have been, as they were carried off into captivity, they would have traveled on that road past her grave. And so the prophet here was writing of the, those mothers' deep lament as their sons were taken into exile. So what's Matthew doing here? He's again tying Jesus to another major significant event in Jewish history, the Babylonian exile. He's showing his readers that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promises made by God to his people after that exile. The exile was a disastrous time in Israel's history. God's people were attacked. They were dispersed to other places. Their holy city, Jerusalem, was taken over by the enemy. It was a really dark and terrible time for them. And it happened about 700 years before the birth of Christ, and it lasted about 150 years. But it had all culminated with a return to Jerusalem and an establishment of God's again renewing his covenant with his people. If you read on a few verses after the one quoted here in chapter 31 of Jeremiah, you see that the prophet says this, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Matthew's Jewish readers are reminded here of all that God did to save them during that disastrous time and the promises he made to them. And by Matthew tying this event to Jesus' story, he was saying God is once again going to take action to save his people just as he did so long ago. But again, we know that this time, through Jesus' death and resurrection that were to come, God's saving action would be complete. With Jesus, the old covenant would be fulfilled and a new covenant would be inaugurated. A covenant in which God's promise that I will be their God and they will be my people would be fully realized. The third and final section of this passage tells the angel's instructions to Joseph that it was now safe to go back to Israel, and which he does. So Herod has died, but the kingdom has been divided between his four sons. And the son that is ruling uh, the area in Judea was known as being a terrible guy, like even worse than his father. Um, he would later be deposed because he was just so cruel and awful. And so Joseph makes this decision not to go back to Bethlehem, but instead to go to Galilee, where the ruler was a little more benevolent. And so we're told in, in uh, this verse, he would be called a Nazarene, as had been said by the prophets. Well, what's interesting about the prophecy here is that it's not a direct quote from any one Old Testament scripture passage. There's no little footnote by it, you know, telling you where to find it in the Old Testament. Um, and you notice that Matthew uses the plural prophets. So he's indicating that this was foretold actually by several different people. 
But the second problem here is that the word Nazarene doesn't actually specifically appear anywhere in the Old Testament. So what is up with that? What does he mean? It was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene when we don't see any prophets actually saying that phrase. Well, to understand this, you have to understand that Nazareth was a tiny town. There's one commentator who referred to it as Nowheresville. So the term Nazarene at this time had become like a slang term uh, referring to a person uh, from a, a really remote place, you know, kind of like calling somebody a hick, you know, like, oh, he's such a Nazarene. Um, so what Matthew was doing here is pointing out to the reader the humility of Christ, a humility that would mark his entire ministry, right? It's a recollection also of the prophecy that was spoken of the Messiah who would be despised. And it foreshadows the similar reaction to Jesus in the final months of his life. So Matthew, in calling his reader's attention to this prophecy, is highlighting the astounding juxtaposition of the great humility of Christ with the great act that he would accomplish on our behalf with the fact that he left his heavenly throne to come down and be with humanity and sacrificed himself so that we could be forgiven for our sins. It's really unfathomable. And so Matthew, in just these few short verses, is doing so much more than just giving us a travelogue of Jesus' life. Through them, he's revealed to his readers that this infant Jesus was so, so much more than could ever have been expected. His coming fulfilled the promises that were made by God to his people as he brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land. His coming fulfilled the promises that were made by God to his people after they had been exiled in Babylon. And his coming would fulfill in a way that no one could have ever had imagined the promise of God to fully and forever save us so that he would be eternally our God and we would be eternally his people. And that should give us a lot of hope. Even in times when we're feeling disappointed or confused or worried or afraid or frustrated or let down, See, Jesus really is so much more than we can grasp. As Matthew shows us, in him is a fulfillment of all God's promises to us. His promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. That he is with us. His promise that we are fully loved, no matter what we do or don't do. His promise that he will make all things right in the end, no matter how bad they may look now. So, after looking at this passage, I'm wondering about a couple of things. Are there any ways in which your understanding of who Jesus is or what he came for might need to be enlarged or expanded? 
do you need to understand better all that it means that a Savior has been born? Could you be missing out on the hope and joy and love and peace that are offered through Jesus? Because maybe you have a somewhat limited knowledge of who he really is and who he really came for. I wonder if the events of our lives only hint at the fullness of that hope and peace and joy and love that we will ultimately find when we meet Jesus face to face. I'm excited about the invitation that's out there for us to read through the New Testament together in uh, 2022. I think that that's going to be an awesome opportunity for all of us to grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came for. And I was not paid to make that that announcement at all. Um, I really, really do believe it because no matter how old I get, what I've found is that when I read scripture, and particularly when I read it in community with other people and have some discussion about it, um, I see a little bit more of the awesomeness of who Jesus really is. So I'm excited about doing that. Another thing I've been wondering about was how this knowledge that God is our God and we are his people, that was the promise, right? How does that give us authentic hope in times when we are disappointed and confused? What does it really mean to us to know that we belong to God? I love those verses in Luke where um, we're told about the shepherds coming and telling Mary and Joseph uh, all the things that the angels had told them about this baby who'd been born. And then it says, and Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And I just, I sort of picture her listening so carefully and then kind of tucking these, these things that they said back in the back of her mind and then just pulling each of them out once in a while and thinking about them, you know, and wondering like, wow, what does that really mean? What, what was that about? And kind of exploring them and getting really curious about them. And so I thought we'd take just a couple minutes to ponder this morning. I think we're doing really good on time. And uh, so... On this second day of Christmas, I'm going to give you just a little gift of some time. Um, I hope it's not a gift you want to return. I hope you like it. Okay, so, um, you know, we rarely have time to just sit and reflect. Um, Jim gave us a little bit of time at the beginning of prayer, which I so appreciated. Um, I'm going to give you a little bit more. Just to ponder what you've heard this morning in God's Word, what He might have spoken to you, And I just invite you to sit quietly. I'm going to give you like three to four minutes. It's not a huge amount of time, but it's a, a little bit of a significant time. And I invite you to sit quietly and just ask God to speak to you. If you're at home, hopefully you can tune out the distractions that are often in our homes. Don't force anything. Um, Just reflect. I hope you don't like make your to-do list while we're doing this, because this is really an opportunity, okay? Um, But just kind of get curious, you know, ponder some of the things that that have been revealed through the scripture this morning, and, and notice some things. 
Notice some things about how you're reacting to it, how you're feeling about those things. Did anything stand out to you? Was there anything that was surprising or confusing or comforting or exciting or, I don't know, whatever? Just talk to God about that. Just tell him what you're feeling and ask him to meet you there and see what happens. And you know what? If there wasn't anything, just talk to him about that. Tell him how you feel about it. Do you feel disappointed or ambivalent or whatever you feel? Go ahead. He can take it. Just tell him, hey, what, what's the scoop? Why am, I, why am I not feeling it here this morning? He'll meet you there. I know he will. I know he is present in this place, and he is willing and anxious to speak to us. And if all of this makes you incredibly uncomfortable, you can just talk to him about that. Like, just give it a try, okay? God is present with us. He wants to hear what's on our hearts and our minds, and he may just have something to say to us. So let's just take a few moments of silence and pray. As a close, I just wanted to share, as I was reflecting on this story and how, you know, Matthew hearkened back to events that the, um, that the Jewish people would have been familiar with and how he, how this, how he drew this line of how, how Jesus fulfilled these things that had happened before so they could kind of, they kind of relate to their feelings. You know, they, they knew what it felt to come out of captivity uh, through the Red Sea and the, and the, the happiness and the joy that they felt in that. They knew the, the joy they felt when they returned from exile in Babylon, but they also knew that those weren't fully it. And, and how Matthew was trying to sort of tie that together. And I was thinking this about um, last week, our son and daughter-in-law, who we hadn't seen in two years because they live on the other side of the world, and with COVID, we couldn't couldn't get to see them for the last two years, and they came home, and we were at the airport, um, and, you know, they came off that, came out of that little customs area down the hallway, and the anticipation we had and the joy we felt when we saw them and our two-year-old granddaughter was so immense, and I was thinking, I think that's just a hint of what we're going to feel when we see Jesus face to face. You know, you can, you can hearken back to events in your life, right, where you felt joy and hope and peace and love. And it, it's so good. Like your heart just, you know, you can think about a big moment in your life when your heart was exploding with those things. That's just a foretaste of what we're going to feel when we see Jesus when we come face to face with him. And that is what gives us hope and joy and peace as we wait. Amen.